Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, last time we ended in the book of Philemon, and today we'll pick up in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So the big idea of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. Paul wrote both letters to the Thessalonians to the church at Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. Acts chapter 17 tells us that on one of his missionary journeys, Paul planted a church in Thessalonica, but he was not there for a very long time. He was there actually less than one month. As a result, many of the believers had questions about core doctrines of the Christian faith, and Paul writes these letters to provide some clarity and meaningful answers. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the second coming of Christ in terms of comfort. That is, he writes the letter so that people do not become obsessed or overly concerned about Christ's return. Indeed, Paul confirms that Christ is coming back, but that should not deter the people from pursuing holy living in the present. As a result, the people ought to live each and every day for Christ, comforted by the fact that because He certainly is coming back, we push on with purified hope and the encouragement to pursue our own sanctification. What this tells you is that the next time you hear about a fringe cult in the middle of the desert that abandons society and sells all of their goods in anticipation of Jesus coming back, you should direct them to Thessalonians and tell them to take it easy. Again, 1 Thessalonians has the return of Christ in mind, but since no one knows when Jesus is specifically coming back, Paul gives the people the most reasonable advice there is to focus on how they are living right now. Paul even ends this letter with 22 specific commands to Christians that they are to execute in the present. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11-23 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully, hold fast that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Second Thessalonians was written in response to more concerns that the congregation had. In fact, we learned that at the time in the church, a false report was circulating amongst the people. This false report claimed that Christ had already returned. Paul assures the people that Christ has not yet returned and then goes on to explain certain forerunners to Christ's second coming. These forerunners begin to touch upon some themes that I will discuss in greater detail in the book of Revelation. 
Ultimately, Paul says that with Christ's second coming, he will establish an eternal earthly kingdom. Still, all of these events are yet to come, and this should not cause us alarm. Rather, Christians should be established in sound doctrine and faithfully walk with the Lord in their Christian service. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3-5 says, But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Next are the pastoral epistles, or First and Second Timothy and Titus. The pastoral epistles speak to those local members of churches who were selected to lead and teach the people. We have to remember that when Paul went on his missionary journeys, he didn't plant a new church in a new city and then leave it to fend for itself. He typically groomed local leaders to be the under-shepherds to guide the sheep. Hence, the pastoral epistles are written to those under-shepherds to instruct them on how to guide the sheep. The pastoral epistles were all written in the final few years of Paul's life. At their core, they represent the words of a spiritual father to a spiritual son. They represent the wise counsel of a mentor speaking to a mentee in order to make sure they are well-equipped and encouraged to walk in the path of faithful church leadership. As generations come and go, the pastoral epistles speak to successive generations of men who will lead local congregations. In a nutshell, the basic message that Paul relays in the pastoral epistles is simple. He tells Timothy and Titus to make sure they, number one, teach the right doctrine, and number two, that they do the right thing. If you ever find yourself on a committee looking for a new pastor, elder, or deacon, and want to know if the Bible gives any specific guidelines on what to look for in these men, you will find them in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 3 gives the specific qualifications of a church leader. These are reiterated in Titus 1. What is so interesting about these qualifications is that the text only talks about one skill that an elder must have, and that skill is the ability to teach. It's not a skill in persuasion, people management, team building, marketing, or fundraising. What the Bible spends most of its time describing are the character traits of a church leader, and the number one trait is that they are above reproach, meaning blameless or above suspicion or criticism. The point is that God is far more concerned with the character of the men who shepherd his flock as opposed to what these men are good at. In modernity, we seem to have gotten these priorities flipped around. Now that's a broad overview of the three pastoral epistles. Let's dive into the specific books. First and Second Timothy are letters written to the man of the same name. Here, Paul gives over the body of truth found in God's word to the next generation so that Timothy can repeat the process when it is his time. These letters are impactful because they were written at the end of Paul's life pending execution. The pastoral epistles begin in First Timothy chapter 1, which details the faith of the church. This is fitting because everything else follows this. 1 Timothy 1, 3-5 says, Instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 3, 15 says, 
I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The primary thing that a church must do in order to be a church is to teach sound doctrine. That is the truth upon which the church is built. If you don't have sound doctrine based on the full counsel of God's word, then you don't have a church. The church leaders, as in the pastors and elders, they are the ones who teach the sound doctrine. Therefore, it is fitting that these men be above reproach and be able to teach, because if they are not above reproach and cannot teach, what you get is polluted water from a polluted source, which makes the church sick. False doctrine is a real danger, so Paul talks about apostasy in 1 Timothy 4 and 5. For those unfamiliar with the term, apostasy is a dirty word in the Bible. In plain language, it refers to when a person knows the doctrine is wrong, but embraces the lie willfully. This is different from ignorance, where a person does not actually know something is wrong. An ignorant person is not an apostate, they are just ill-informed. The devil was the first apostate, and he's been trying to lure people away from the true church to false churches since the Garden of Eden. Additionally, since God's word is systematic and orderly, the Lord prescribes that the church is to be systematic and orderly as well. The church leaders bear the task of ensuring this orderliness. The Bible does not prescribe any specific type of order, only that there be order. The Bible never defines if you decide by committee, by democratic vote, or an elder board. It is concerned with the character of the people who are ordering things. It prescribes that church leaders be spiritual men who are strong in their faith and have a genuine love for God and the people. Next is 2 Timothy, which is a very special book. It is special because it is the last book that Paul wrote before he was executed. So in a sense, it is almost like a last will and testament. 2 Timothy is a heartfelt, powerful word of encouragement from an experienced church leader to another, where Paul essentially says, this is going to be tough, but you can do this. Paul makes it clear that a result of true, honest, and faithful gospel preaching is apostasy, people willfully rejecting the truth and doing what is right in their own eyes. In other words, Paul tells Timothy, the more truth you preach, the more people will reject it. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That in 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 to 4, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge living in the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. It is simply because men love the lie that Paul tells Timothy he must cling ever tighter to the truth of God's word and never let go. This helps to explain why more than any other epistle, Paul emphasizes the Word of God over and over again in 2 Timothy. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 is a Bible verse that I think all Christians should devote to memory. That verse says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness 
so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul closes 2 Timothy in the shadows of danger because the apostle knew he was going to be executed. But it is important to note that the last communication Paul made at the end of his life imparted words of triumphant encouragement to one man so that he could fight the good fight, run the course, and live for Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul closes his final letter and says, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Titus touches upon many of the themes as in 1st and 2nd Timothy, but while the emphasis in Timothy is on doctrine, the emphasis in Titus is on doing. That is, God prescribes that his church teach the right doctrine and be orderly. Yet the church does not stop there. It then takes the next step and does good works. So, Titus 1.5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Then, in Titus 3.1, the text highlights godly works and says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. At the end of the day, people need help and are needy. The church will always preach the truth of the gospel because the gospel tells people about Jesus and only Jesus saves people. Yet, sometimes people cannot hear the gospel because, for example, they are so hungry they're about to pass out. In that case, good works, like providing natural food, is not an end in and of itself, but it is a way to do things for people so that they can see Christ in his followers. They can see with their own eyes that followers of Christ perform not just a spiritual good, but an earthly one. The next epistle is the book of Hebrews. And the big idea of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. The book of Hebrews is like Romans in that it takes a broad view of the drama of redemption from start to finish. But in contrast to Romans, Hebrews uses that same broad lens and exalts Christ as better than everything that came before him. Hebrews presents Christ in his office of the great high priest and says that Jesus is better than the prophets, is superior to angels, is better than Moses and Joshua, and is supreme to the Levitical priesthood and an earthly temple. Everyone that came before Christ was a sinful man. Christ is the perfect God-man who is thus the perfect mediator between God and man. Christ is supreme because you cannot do better than him. Because of this fact, our faith is grounded in something reliable and our hope is unshakable. Because you cannot do better than Christ and Christ has redeemed the elect, we are now able to journey the course of life with boldness. Hebrews 12, 1-3 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Within the book of Hebrews, there are also stern warnings about doubt, drifting, and denying Christ. 
After all, if Christ is supreme and one were to reject the one who is supreme, then what is a person left to do? Next, we will talk about the general epistles, which includes the books of James, Peter, John, and Jude. The general epistles are called such because they were written to a general audience, meaning their target audience was the universal church, not just a person or the congregation in a single city. The first general epistle is James. And the big idea of the book of James is that faith yields works. James is a very practical book with a very practical message. That message is that people who really have saving faith in Jesus Christ will be able to prove it. How will they be able to prove it? By their works. Don't get me wrong, their works do not save them. Their faith saves them, but that faith is not dead faith. It is a living faith that transforms a person and has real effects in real life. God may be able to examine a person's heart, but other human beings cannot. Therefore, the way in which people can tell if other people are saved are by their works, are by what they do. Faith on the inside animates works on the outside. And by the way, works refers to what people do, what they say, and how they interact with the world. True faith always yields works. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James 1.18-20 says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Next are the general epistles of First and Second Peter. And the big idea of First and Second Peter is Christian hope in the midst of suffering. Both of the epistles of Peter encourage Christians who are undergoing persecution. In 1 Peter, the apostle implants within his readers' hearts a sense of hope because of the assurance that those who endure godly suffering do so for a godly reason. Refining trials purify us, sanctify us, produce joy, holiness, hope, humility, patience, and obedience to the will of God. Truly, Peter does not speak from his head but from his heart as a man who endured countless degrees of suffering and persecution throughout his life. Ultimately, the Christian hope in suffering is a vibrant living hope because the object of our trust reigns supreme and lives forever. 1 Peter 1, 18-23 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Second Peter is similar to Second Timothy. How so? Second Timothy was Paul's final communication, while Second Peter is Peter's last communication. 
And what does Peter say in his final epistle? Something very similar to what Paul said, that apostasy is coming. Peter's words are more ominous because while Paul warned that church people would pursue false doctrine and ear-tickling, Peter warns us that church leaders will be peddlers of deceit. So where is our hope in the midst of this trial? Our hope is in the Word of God, specifically a knowledge of Christ, the anchor that will keep your vessel sturdy in the coming tsunami of apostasy is the Word of God. 2 Peter 1 verses 2 to 3 says, The anchor that will keep your vessel sturdy in the coming tsunami of apostasy is the Word of God and knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 to 3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Note what Peter says here and what I think is an often overlooked correlation in the New Testament. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. In other words, life and godliness come from knowledge of Christ, which means what? That the inverse is also true that death and ungodliness come from ignorance of Christ. The Bible is clear that apostasy and falling away will become worse and worse, but our only hope is knowledge of the Word of God. In practical terms, this means dedicated daily Bible reading and taking Bible literacy and Bible education very seriously. The life of the church is at stake. After all, in the Bible, God Himself is speaking to us. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What God has said stands forever. What men say, people will forget over time. The Word of God is no secret. It is revealed in full to everyone, everywhere. Knowledge of Jesus and having a real relationship with Him immunizes us against the lie. Peter closes in chapter 3, verses 17 to 18 and says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The next set of epistles are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the big idea of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the family of God. The three epistles of John talk about how the love of God should manifest in the life of the church. In fact, John is often called the apostle of love, so it is fitting that he uses the love family members have for one another to talk about how members in the family of God interact with one another. Our spiritual family association is made possible by our elder brother, Jesus. On a practical level, if you ever wanted a ground-level instruction on how Christians are to interact and relate to one another, then you will find 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John very helpful. In 1st John, the Apostle defines God as light, 
love, and life. So when the children in God's family walk in the light and love their Heavenly Father and fellow siblings, they will have full and abundant life. 1 John 1, 1 1-4 says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. In Second John, the theme of the family of God continues. In all of his writings, John makes it clear that a genuine child of God shows genuine love to others. But in 2 John, the apostle also makes it clear that there is no universal brotherhood of man. In other words, not all of humanity is the same family, and many delight in darkness. Examples of such people are those who reject Jesus and deny that he is the Messiah. John goes so far to say that Christians are not to entertain such individuals in their homes, nor are they to even greet them because that greeting implies a participation in evil. What all of this boils down to is that genuine Christian love is love in truth. Love without truth is not Christian love. Members of the family of God love one another in truth, but we are never called to love the world or love the people of the world unconditionally. In fact, if we ever did try to love someone without the truth of God, we're fooling ourselves because that's wickedness in disguise. Genuine love and truth go hand in hand, so the most ungenuine, unloving thing that a Christian can tell the world today is something like, God loves you unconditionally, no matter if you reject Jesus, no matter if you delight in sin, no matter if you repent or not. That declaration is analogous to rubber stamping someone else's one-way ticket straight to hell. If truth and love are forced to fight, truth wins. Hence, in 2 John chapter 2, verses 1-3, to the text says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not I only, but also who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. In 3 John, the motif of the truth is extended. Basically, John's third epistle talks about a life for God that manifests as service to the Lord. Thus, members of the family of God serve in that family as they all walk and work in the truth. The final epistle we will talk about is the book of Jude. And the big idea of the book of Jude is assurance in the midst of apostasy. Jude is a very short book that immediately precedes Revelation. Jude is only one chapter long, but the entire chapter is devoted to apostasy that exists and is to come. Jude basically says apostasy has been a problem all throughout the drama of redemption and gives plenty of examples from the Old Testament. Jude names names and calls out apostate teachers of his day. He warns us that there are more apostates to come. He then closes his book by equipping us with strategies that we can use in apostate times. Ultimately, because we serve the Sovereign Lord, we have assurance in the midst of apostasy, knowing that God is in control. 
He's so much in control. He's been prophetically telling us what was going to happen hundreds and thousands of years before they happen since the beginning of time. Jude verses 17 to 23 says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. There are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. As you have probably gotten by now, apostasy is a big theme in the latter books of the Bible because the closer we get to the end, the more apostasy there will be. This should not be surprising in that since the fall of humankind, the problem has never been a lack of light. The problem has always been a love of darkness. The Bible makes it clear that the truth is always worth fighting for because the truth is what stands and saves people. The lie will invariably fall and destroy people. Jude looks forward to the end, but there is a book devoted exclusively to the end times. That is the book of Revelation, which will be the topic of the next episode. Since Revelation is the last book of the Bible, the next episode in Volume 5 will also be the final episode of The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple. Until then. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.